Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's good, Tony? Not much. Just enjoying a good Sunday afternoon. We finally have some decent weather for a change. Man, I am really stoked that spring is finally here, at least for us. Yeah, we've had a ton of rain, but it seems like it finally uh, dried up a little bit, and we finally have some decent weather, like 70 degrees. It's it's gorgeous outside. I like that we always make the opening remarks the Reformed Weathercast. Yes, the Reformed Weathercast. That's a different podcast that I'm going to do. I'm just going to read weather.com for like 45 minutes every day. And that weather report would just end with like how it's supposed to be outside is how it's supposed to be because yeah, exactly. God is in control and sovereign over all things. Exactly. You're welcome. Yep. Perfect. End so what podcast. are we talking about tonight? So we uh, recently did our systematic theology episode on uh, covenant theology. So we decided that the next logical step would be to talk about dispensationalism uh, and kind of um, compare and contrast the two. So if you haven't listened to the episode on covenant theology, you're going to want to go back and check that out and then come back and listen to this because we're not going to do a lot of re-explaining covenant theology. We're kind of assuming that you've listened to that episode. Right on. And this is a really important conversation because it's I think it's going to help clarify for a lot of people the differences between the two. And there's even some confusion, I think, in the reform camp when it comes to dispensationalism, even answering the question, can I be reformed and dispensational? And then I wanted to help bring into focus a little bit how these two different views then shape how we understand and relate to the scriptures and then how we actually apply that in our day-to-day living. Yeah. And I think that's a really good question to start with. The idea of, can I be reformed and uh, hold to a dispensational uh, hermeneutic or eschatology? And I think the, the, kind of blunt answer that we have to have is no, you can't, or at least not consistently. And um, the reason for that, as we talked about in the Covenant Theology episode, is that Covenant Theology really is Reformed Theology. So when people think about Reformed Theology, they think about things like TULIP. Um, And TULIP is a good kind of like summary of Reformed Soteriology or Salvation Theology. But when you take a step back, um, the garden that the tulip grows in, if you want to keep the, the horticulture reference, the garden that the tulip grows in is covenant theology. And so if you don't have the right soil, then the flower can't, can't grow correctly. And what ends up happening a lot of times with tulip is you end up getting some weird kind of squirrely iterations of it. Um, so like John MacArthur occasionally will say some weird stuff. He has to try to get around like limited atonement at times because of the way he believes Israel is saved um, because It's not so much for him, at least as I understand it, it's not so much that Christ doesn't save Israel or that Israel isn't saved through Christ, but they're not necessarily saved through the cross. So the atonement that Christ makes on the cross can't be limited in the same way that uh, comprehensive reformed soteriology would hold it to be. So this system, because um, dispensationalism is really a hermeneutic, it's, it's actually like prior to systematic theology. It happens before it. So we, we get our hermeneutic and we look at the scriptures and our hermeneutic is the lens that we look at scripture in. And then we take that and we understand our systematics out of that, out of that understanding of scripture. So it's a totally different way of even coming to the scriptures in the first place. Right. And that's why it's so important to take a really good look at it. Try to understand where our stream of theology fits in with this kind of theory. Yeah, absolutely. So Jesse, why don't you, um, if you would, give us kind of like the big picture overview of like what's the distinctive aspects of uh, dispensationalism? 
Right. So as you said, the important thing is here, we're kind of, you and I are speaking about this in really general classical terms. So there's lots of nuances and there's lots of little different moving pieces, but we're going to speak about it kind of writ large, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I would say there are three important distinctives in dispensational theology, as I understand it. The first is that it's the biggest difference is it's seeing God as structuring his relationship with mankind through these different stages of revelation, which are marked off by different dispensations. So there's these discrete time intervals in which God is creating a test of mankind to be faithful to some particular revelation given at that time. And I think most classical dispensationalists would say that there are seven discrete discrete epochs, and we don't have to get into all those little differences. But they're measured out, and they occur all the way from before the fall all the way through the millennium. And the second thing is that most dispensationalists hold to a very literal interpretation of the scripture. So it doesn't mean, of course, that they're denying the existence of figures of speech or non-literal language, but it means that there is a literal meaning behind figurative passages, especially when it comes to Israel, which would be the third distinctive. So there's a holding and distinction between Israel, even believing Israel, and the church. So on that view, the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament were not intended as prophecies about God, what God would do spiritually for the church, but they were literally to be filled by Israel itself. So there are these kind of two peoples of God, in a sense. We're running parallel, these different kind of soteriologies, which I think is something that we'll get into in a little bit. But that's kind of like the bird's eye view, as far as I understand it. What have I missed? Well, I don't think you missed anything. One thing that I would um, add is that there is sort of a new school of dispensationalism, and new, new, relatively speaking, um, is uh, it's called progressive dispensationalism. And I'll right. be honest that I haven't studied it as much, um, but it, my understanding is that it's kind of a reaction to some of the extreme views of sort of the classic dispensationalists. So when you go back to sort of the headwaters of dispensationalism, which we'll come back to what those are, but when you go to the headwaters of dispensationalism, you have um, you have a system where they're actually saying that prior to the cross, prior to the the entrance of the Christian church, um, the Jews were actually saved by, or potentially saved by works, by obedience. Um, I don't remember who it is um, particularly, but um, just a generalized statement is that um, there's a podcast called Theology Simply Profound that did a comprehensive like 95 part series on dispensationalism. So um, you should definitely go check that out. There'll be a link in the show notes. But one of the main figures in dispensationalism, it may have actually been um, Ryrie maybe, but in one of the study notes, one of the study Bibles, there was actually a note next to the covenant ceremony in um, Exodus where the people say, yes, we will uh, do all of the words of these law. He actually kind of note in a marginal note that um, they should have refused the legal covenant. They should have, they should have asked for a gracious covenant. Um, And because they didn't ask for a gracious covenant, they were now obligated to earn their salvation by works. So we're talking about in its classical kind of extreme form, we're talking about a pretty stark contrast to, I would say, just like general Christian theology of of salvation by grace through all through all time for all people, Um, all kinds of people, not all people individually. Um, (laughs) Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, no problem. Um, We're talking about a contrast that's pretty stark. And so this progressive yes. dispensationalism is kind of a moderating um, wing of dispensation that still holds some of the more troubling features of dispensationalism, but has tried to kind of become a little bit more soft on that. And they want to say, well, no, God's, you know, God does have a plan to bring all of Israel and all of the church into one people. So they, they kind of mitigate some of those most extreme things. But there's still some some problems in that um, branch of theology, too, that I, I don't think we'll get into tonight. But we want to make that distinction because there are probably a few progressive dispensationalists that might hear this that are going to take ob- uh, objection to what we're describing. And that's because we're not describing progressive dispensational. We're pro- describing kind of classic Dwight Pentecost, um, you know, Nelson Darby kinds of stuff. There is for sure a sliding scale on this particular view. Yeah. And it depends in part, like you said, on how much you really want to go toe-to-toe with the outworkings of the view, which would say that there does have to be some works righteousness right. on the part of Israel itself. So that, And we're anticipating a bit because I think we're going to get into that discussion. Yeah, we but will. I think the biggest thing we want to draw out is that whereas we spoke last week of the covenants 
not being a test of man's faithfulness in some kind of new stage of revelation, but they're differing administrations of a single overarching covenant of grace. Right. So, of course, there is the Pactum Salus, which you spoke about in terms of the covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace. In a way, those are all start part of this grand story arc of promises made on the part of God to fulfill a destiny for his people. And that's that stands in stark contradiction to what the dispensationalist view would hold. Right. And I think it bears saying, too, um, and we won't harp on this too much, but when we talk about like the headwaters of dispensationalism, um, most of the competing theological views that we're talking about on the show, you know, Lutheranism, Arminianism, even when we talk about things like Roman Catholicism, we're talking about um, positions that are hundreds of years old. You know, Arminianism is like 450 years old. Lutheranism is older than the Reformed branch of the church. Um, dispensationalism literally is literally, <laughs> literally. Um, I'm going to try to say literally as much as possible during a show on dispensationalism. Um, dispensationalism is literally like 200 years old at the oldest. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the a, new kid on the block. Yeah. It's, it's an 1800s invention. Um, and if you read dispensationalist literature, you're going to see people saying, no, no, no. See, people believed this long before um, us. And one thing that you missed with dispensationalism is um, a pre-tribulation rapture. Right. right. So we haven't talked about eschatology, so we won't go too far into it. But there's there's some broad views that we have to sort of touch on. There's pre um, premillennialism, which means that Christ is going to return um, prior to the millennium. And then the millennium happens. There's all millennialism, which basically says that Christ is already reigning and the millennium millennialism, the millennium Falcon, the millennial, the millennial. Wow. I'm just having you trouble. Get, you got it. Get after the it, millennia is actually a figurative thing. It's not a literal period of time. It's the entire time of the churches kind of sojourning on earth while Christ is reigning in heaven. And then Christ returns to earth kind of after that figurative period of time. There's post-millennialism, which is similar, where Christ returns after the millennium. And then there's this pre-millennial dispensationalism. And you can't have dispensationalism without a without a rapture. So you can have exactly. pre trib rapture, post-trib rapture, mid-trib you know, all those different kinds of concepts. But if you don't have a rapture, you don't have um, you do, a secret rapture. You don't have dispensationalism. And so a lot of this is going to depend on kind of where you stand in terms of you know how you think about this. But you don't see this concept of a secret rapture of the church prior to the 1800s. Um, you see um, you know, premillennialism, but there's not this sort of secret rapture of the church. So, so we can't say the dispensationalist is not correct when they talk about you know, dispensationalism in the first century. They may point back and see uh, premillennialism in the first century or the second century, I suppose, but you're not going to see this secret rapture. So you don't actually have dispensationalism. Right. But in most cases we have to read into or assume from earlier kind of thoughts and outworkings that the theory existed, but it wasn't really articulated right. until much, much later. Right. So it's only as old as, it's only as, old as the iPhone basically. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. So I wanted to start um, kind of our discussion about this with a couple quotes. So I'm going to read um, a f moderately sizable section out of uh, A Case for All Millennialism. Um, and the reason you're going to see, I, I have two books that are sort of against dispensationalism, and I have one that is for dispensationalism. And I'm reading eschatology books. And the reason for that is because although dispensationalism is much broader than eschatology, it really comes to like a focus in the discussions of eschatology. And so most of the time when you see like a good summary of dispensationalism or a good refutation, it's in a book talking about um, about eschatology. So I'm reading from A Case for All Millennialism, which is by Kim Riddlebarger. This is the expanded edition, if that matters. Um, and I'm reading on page, starting on page 52. So he's talking about um, the idea of a literal versus a literalistic interpretation. Interpretation. So we would affirm that you should interpret the scriptures literally, which means you should interpret it according to the literary genre, um, and you should take the words at face value for what they're trying to communicate. You should you should interpret the scripture in the light of the way they were intended by the author. A literalistic interpretation is more like you should take the words at face value according to their most basic common usage, which is not the right. same thing. So in that context, he's talking about the Acts 15 church. Um, and he uh, starts out saying on, on the bottom of page 52, Then James, the leader of the church, spoke. 
God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. And then um, back to Dr. Riddlebarger. And James cites a passage from Amos 9, 11, 12, quote, After this I will return and will rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruin I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who bear my name shall, uh, says the Lord, who does these things, that have been known for ages, end of quote. James saw the prophecy as fulfilled in Christ's resurrection and exaltation and in the reconstitution of his disciples as the new Israel. The presence of both Jews and Gentiles in the church was proof that the prophecy of Amos had been fulfilled. David's fallen tent had been rebuilt by Christ. In Amos's prophecy, after this, indicated that the prophecy referred to what God would do for Israel after the exile. When James applied this prophecy to the church, he was, was he spiritualizing an Old Testament text? Or was James reading the Old Testament through Christ-centered lenses, typical of the greater light of the Messianic age? This question lies at the heart of the debate between amillenarians, amillenarians and dispensationalists. The famous notes of the Schofield Reference Bible, 1909, say that from a dispensational perspective, James's speech is the most important in the New Testament. According to Schofield, James is describing what will happen after the church age concludes, in the millennium, when God will reestablish a Davidic rule over Israel. If this is true, when Paul and Barnabas sought guidance for a concern that was immediate to them, should the Gentile converts be circumcised, James responded by pointing to a future millennium thousands of years distant. Here is one instance in when dispensational presuppositions get in the way of the plain sense of the text. Schofield interprets the text literalistically, not literally. So what Dr. Riddlebarger is saying here basically is that the apostles interpret this passage in Amos as, uh, as finding its fulfillment in Christ and then in what Christ is doing in building the church. Um, the dispensationalist is in the unfortunate position in this case of having to understand um, David's tent as being a reference to the literal geopolitical uh, ethnic people of Israel. And so they're actually interpreting this text differently than the apostles do, um, which is definitely not a good place to be in terms of in terms of uh, hermeneutical understanding. And I don't think something like that should surprise us because we're so quick to understand that in other areas, Jesus changed. Well, this is going to sound weird now that I said just in other areas, but in all areas, Jesus changes everything, right? right? So if there is a new covenant in his blood and he's transmuting all of these shadows into the real thing, everything from like we talked about worship to the temple to sacrifice, it makes sense that the apostles are interpreting that as well for this new Israel, this new church in exactly the same way. So right. it, it's a wild argument because basically what we're saying is that it wasn't even in the minds of the apostles to draw further distinction. And in fact, most of what they live out, all of the teaching that happens from there on out, is inclusive rather than exclusive, especially of the Gentiles, showing that there was in their minds a clear recapitulation or retranslation of what the church or what the promised people were supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. So just to contrast that, um, I want to read, um, this isn't quite the seminal text, but this is reading from uh, Things to Come, which is by J. Dwight Pentecost. Um, and Pentecost was kind of like the second-ish, maybe third generation of dispensationalists. And so this is on page 201, and I'll have links to the bibliography information for all these if you want to find them. Um, starting on page 201, and it's a subsection titled The Distinctions Between Israel and the Church. Um, and he's quoting Lewis Sperry Schaefer's Systematic Theology. He says, Schaefer has set forth 24 contrasts between Israel and the church, which shows us conclusively that these two groups cannot be united into one, but that they must be distinguished as two separate entities with whom God is dealing in a special program. These contrasts may be outlined as follows. The extent of biblical revelation, Israel nearly four-fifths of the Bible, church about one-fifth. The divine purpose, Israel, the earthly promises of the covenants, church, the heavenly promise in the gospel. Third, the seeds of Abraham, Israel, the physical seed of whom some become spiritual seed, church, a spiritual seed, birth. And then he goes on and on and on um, to 24 different positions. And then here, I think this one is really significant. Uh, number 23, judgments. Israel must face judgment. 
Church, delivered from all judgments. Number 24, position in eternity. Israel, spirits of just men, made perfect in the new earth. Church, church of the firstborn in the new heaven. So again, we see that that it's the spirits of just men or righteous men that are made perfect in the new earth. And then the church dwells in heaven with Christ. So even in the very end, the culmination of all things, Israel and the church are still different. They're still separated, right? Israel receives a physical resurrection and is reconstituted on the new earth. And the church, I guess, receives a physical resurrection, but exists in heaven, not even in the same you know, physical location as the church. Right. Uh, and I think it bears saying, too, you're going to get as many definitions and understandings of what dispensationalism is as you are going to get dispensationalists. And the reason for that is because we, you know, we've said time and time again how helpful confessions are in sort of setting up boundaries and keeping people on the same page. There's no such thing as a uh, dispensationalist confession. So one, one, dispensational, one dispensationalist will have one understanding of not only their own system but of the scripture, and another one will have something different. Um, and so that's important is that it's hard to even sort of nail down what dispensationalism is because there's no uniform teaching among dispensationalists. Clearly, we were completely unprepared for this cast because you and I should have just practiced saying dispensational, dispensation, amillennial yeah, over and seriously. over again before we started talking. Yeah, I should have. I, I don't know. I should have practiced more. Those words are always tough, though. I know those are tough. It's it's crazy. So, um I guess I'm not 100% sure where to go next. So what <laughs> what kind of questions do we want to tackle on this? Because it's such a big subject is, is really what's hard. I mean, I think, you know, we talked about, we joked about how Theology Simply Profound did this in like 95 episodes. I don't remember how many it actually is. It's um, a lot, it, though. It was double digits. And it, yeah, they're, it's long, a lot. they're long in-depth programs. So I really do encourage you to go take a look. Um, but it, it's a hard subject because of how big and vast it is. And because there are so many different perspectives... You know, even getting even getting an understanding and an agreement on how many dispensations there are, that yes. even is hard to do. Some will say seven, some say five. I've seen more than seven. I've seen as few as like three or four. Um, it can get really dicey trying to parse that out. And if you want to find good charts, you go to a dispensationalist church because they have the best charts in terms of uh, eschatology. They got like little arrows and Bible verses and everything. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, because you have to have like a, a legit flow chart to follow a lot of this because it's not that it's not well thought out. It, it's built from an appreciation for understanding that God is sovereign and he's choosing a people right. and they're trying to sort all that out. But it does, even for me, can get like tremendously confusing really quickly. Yeah. So maybe it'd be a good idea just to run through kind of how they understand sort of the history of salvation. Yeah, let's In do really like the broad piece. terms. So they would, they would look at um, the arrangement in the garden. Um, kind of the Adamic dispensation as the first, I think they call it the Age of Innocence. I may be wrong. That's correct. Um, but they, they would call that kind of the first dispensation. And so what you see in each dispensation is there's a test, there's a rule, and then there's a consequence. And all of those things play out in that order uh, in order for them to move on to the next dispensation. So Adam obviously has the test of not eating the tree, of eating from the tree of knowledge, and then he has the rule, which is, again, don't eat from the tree of the garden of the knowledge of good and evil. And then there's the consequence. Once he has failed that test, then he moves on. The, you know, humankind moves on into the next phase. I don't remember what the next one is, but I think it goes roughly until Noah. Um, I think it's like the age of, of governance, maybe. Um, and then after Noah, it moves on to Abraham and then Abraham to Moses. And then basically you have the entire history of Israel's people until uh, Christ comes is one dispensation usually. Sometimes they break it up into like the pre-Davidic and then the post-Davidic. And then you have the age of the church. And it's really important to understand that the age of the church, as we said in the, the Pentecost quote, is an interruption in God's program. So um, while I'm kind of talking through that, do you want to pull up, um, is it Daniel 7, 8 or 9, somewhere in there, the 70 weeks? Yeah, sure. So um, in Daniel, and we'll get the text and read it, but in Daniel, there's a prophecy about 70 weeks. And the first 69 weeks, basically, if you count it out, they come right up to Christ's, Christ's ministry. Um, and so they would, they would say those 69 prophesied weeks happen, and then Christ's ministry happens. And what happens in, in that is that the Jews reject Christ. So Israel rejects her Messiah. And what then has to happen is God kind of 
defaults to plan B, which is the church. And so the church is an interruption. They call it a parenthesis in the program of Israel. And so everything that happens from the cross to, to, to the rapture is the church, which isn't, is not usually considered a dispensation in and of itself. It's kind of like a, like an interruption in the dispensations. And so, because there's no, there's no test, there's no, and there's no breaking the, the rule because there's no rule. As we said, the, the church is see, given grace. They're not to face judgment. It's, it's sort of a different kind of thing. Once, and this is why the rapture is so important, is that the church happens. And as long as the church is present and exists on earth, then God can't resume his program for Israel. So at the end of this undefined parentheses, um, the church's raptured, is taken away from the church or from the earth. And then we have the 70th week resumes. So God's program for Israel resumes. And so the, the idea is that each of these weeks represents seven years. And so seven times 69, that gets you to Christ. And then you have seven years. That's why there's a seven year tribulation at the end of time. If you've read um, Left Behind is a fictionalized version of what's going to happen after the rapture. That's why it's seven years is because it's that final 70th week of Daniel. I think it's Daniel 9. Yeah, it's Daniel 9, 24. Do you have that? I have it right here. Great. Why don't you read that? So 70, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Yeah. So there's these 70 weeks. And the dispensationalists, again, this is one of those places where the presupposition of dispensationalism forces them to insert something that is not literally in the text. So they have to insert in the text this uh, period of time, which is now coming on 2000, you know, um, 1997 years or whatever it is, minus 30 years or whatever for when Christ was on earth. This, this period of time that happens that is not part of that. There, in Daniel, there's nowhere in there that says there'll be 69 weeks and then we're going to have a gap of 2000 plus years. And then we're going to have the last seven, the last week. So again, they have to kind of come up with these different ways because it didn't work out. The, the math doesn't work out. Um, so that's why the rapture is so important to them is because the church has to be taken away in order for um, that program to resume. Right. So, um, I mean, it's such a huge topic. What, what, what kind of thoughts do you have, Jesse? Yeah. So what I was thinking about, cause I've, I'm with you as well. It's a bit daunting to kind of take it on, but in terms of the distinctives, one of the things that's been helpful for me is thinking about those discrete intervals as somehow God giving his people stewardship arrangements. So like we've said a couple of times, they're given a particular task. It's some responsibility. And to me, this is the only way I can think about it for some reason. And this jump back in my head when you were talking about it, I feel like it's like Super Mario 3. You know what I mean? Like you, you have a test, you have a task, but you can't move on to the next level or dispensation to either you get it or you fail it. Right. Either way you move on. But in this case, you're always failing it. So there's kind of this really dismal view of, of history generally because you only are making it from one epoch to the next because you were given the test right. and then you absolutely failed it and then you moved on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that's one of the first kind of like systematic questions that comes up for me when I'm at, when I'm looking at this is, you know, Adam was put in the garden and he was given this, this specific set of rules and specific arrangements that he was bound by these laws, but the people after him, that dispensation is gone. Right. So exactly. How is, how is original sin passed on? Like, how does that work? If that, those set of rules, Adam, Adam wasn't representing anyone because I'm, I'm not under those set of rules. And even if I wasn't a Christian and I was, you know, a Jew, I wasn't under those rules. You know, the people of Israel weren't under that particular dispensation. So it gives the question of like, how is original sin passed on? Um, all of those kinds of things kind of come to the surface. Right. One of the funniest things about this for me, or at least one of the great ironies, is that when I've spoken to dispensationalists who, is, who are very sometimes convincing and convicted about this particular view, when I ask that very question, because it does seem like there, you want to draw lines of demarcation. In fact, that's what the whole thing is built on. I'll ask that question about original sin being passed on, and they'll usually say, well, you're taking that too literally, which is funny because I'll say, yeah, but this is a very literal view of all right. things. So where do we even 
slide the scale to draw the line on how much literal interpretation is too much and how much is not enough. Yeah, and I think one of the ways that they um, they would address that, you know, there's kind of the, the maxim um, or the axiom that um, when when literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Right. And so the idea is that if if you can read the text and it makes sense from a real literal, you know, straightforward reading, then don't seek another interpretation. Um, a little Jason Bourne music there with my phone ringing. I love um, that. But um, you know. The problem with that is that they then take texts that do seem on the surface to seem just fine reading literally, and they have to, I don't want to say distort because I don't think they're doing it with like a nefarious purpose, but they have to take those texts and they have to import some sort of other meaning into it. So uh, like, you know, we saw in the Daniel text, there's no extra 2000 years there. Um, In the Acts text, James seems to really straightforwardly be be saying, um, Amos was talking about what's going on right now. Amos was talking about what's going to happen with Israel after the exile. And what happened with Israel after the exile is Christ came and reconstituted Israel as a spiritual offspring um, rather than a biological offspring. And that's not to say, you know, spiritual Israel always was Israel. Um, And then we get to, you know, we get to like um, Revelation and Revelation itself says this is a book of symbols and numbers. So when you get to Revelation, the beginning of the text tells you this is a book that's full of symbolism, but they're still going to apply that literal when possible hermeneutic, even when the text literally tells you this is a symbolic book. Exactly. So that's where we get some of the, I don't want to say crazy. I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to use words like crazy. They're very difficult for me to see as logical interpretations that, you know, the text says, well, we're going to have these locusts that look like they're wearing armor and have the face of a woman. And the dispensationalist goes, well, that must be Apache helicopters. And I'm going, how right. is that a literal interpretation of the text to say that a locust that looks like it has armor on it, that is a demon. The text says it's probably, it's a demon. Um, how is that an Apache helicopter? Um, right. So we, the, the dispensationalist, uh, I think inconsistently applies that, that uh, hermeneutic of literalism when it's not convenient. And it's not like they're trying to do that on purpose. Like I said, I'm trying really hard not to imply motives or anything like that. But when they come to text that you can't, um, you can't understand literally, they go way off the handle sometimes um, and, and import a lot of really, really crazy stuff. That could be true. By the way, you can address all of your dispensational love mail to Tony Arsenal. Yes, all the dispensationalist love mail. <laughs> also, this is probably the best time I can think of since it just happened accidentally to talk about real quick that you and I have the same phone ringtone because we're brothers. Yes. And it was acquired by this podcast. And that ringtone is the Jason Bourne theme, uh, Extreme Ways by Moby, which quite possibly is the best ringtone ever. It's true. It's true. And I have the same one because you sent it to me and said, you better make this your ringtone. Yeah, because here's the thing. You cannot help but feel a little bit like Jason Bourne on the inside when somebody calls you. I mean, I'm not that popular. People don't call me that often, but sometimes I don't even want to pick it up. Like when I get like a cold call, I love it. I'll just let it ring now because when when that's walking around, that soundtrack comes on in your back pocket and you're just walking around. It feels like all of a sudden you're going to have to. I don't know, like go on a secret mission or like steal a car in Berlin or something like that. Yeah. And and this is literally the first time that my phone is rang in like three days and it has to ring while I'm on a podcast. <laughs> this is, this is live podcasting folks. This is proof, proof positive that we do not edit. It is just straight through. Yeah. So, um, why don't we why don't we try to to sort of land on some practical differences and some things that people should keep an eye out yes. for? Because the other thing that happens um, real commonly, um, so the the ordo salutis, uh, if you will, of most reformed guys and gals that I know is they were raised in an evangelical context and they sort of like absorbed dispensationalism as the default. And so as they've come into a more reformed way of thinking, usually they start with just the soteriology, um, which, as we said earlier, you can you can be a dispensationalist and affirm the five points of Calvinism or Tulip or the Synod of Dort, 
kind of, but you may not realize where the inconsistencies lie. Right. But as people move from the tulip understanding to a more confessional perspective um, or a more robust reform perspective, they start to recognize that dispensationalism doesn't work. But there's a lot of sort of like subtle things in our thinking, especially as we start to understand covenant theology, because there are lots of linguistic parallels. The way we talk about things can overlap. There's things that sort of find their way into our systematic theology that we probably don't want. So what we want to do is we want to kind of um, we want to look at some um, practical ways that we can kind of recognize dispensationalism. Maybe you're visiting a new church and you're not sure where they're where they're at on the spectrum, um, or maybe like you're reading scripture and you think a text means one thing and it means another thing. Um, we want to kind of identify some of those kinds of things. So do you have any texts maybe that we can go to that really kind of clearly? we can look at and clearly show like the differences between dispensationalism and how reformed covenant theology would interpret the text. Yeah, for sure. I think one that would be a great list litmus would be Romans two. So in Romans two twenty eight, uh, Paul saying for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So that's one of those passages that depending, that's one that if you, you get somebody's perspective on that, you're going to be able to draw out right away because they're going to have to make the distinction going back between a literal Israel and the church. So right. for instance, as I think you and I would agree, as we read this, Paul is making it clear that Israel from the beginning was a spiritual entity, even though there was an external aspect to Israel, that, that circumcision was not just a simply a matter of an outward form and a sign, but that there was some kind of inward spiritual reality, which was necessary for fellowship with God. So that would be a covenantal view, but you could see how somebody could interpret that in kind of the opposite perspective, right? Right. Yeah. And so that that's one of the things is that we have to understand the, the main functional difference between how, and this is an ecclesiology issue. We haven't, again, we haven't gotten to ecclesiology yet, but the main functional difference in the area of the church is that Israel in the dispensational view is a totally different entity than the church. The right. church did not exist in the old Testament. We, we may not, um, we may not say anything about the old Testament church, unless we're talking about Israel as something distinct from the new Testament church. We're in a reformed understanding. Uh, and there are different ways to handle this, but in a reformed understanding, the church um, has been the faithful people of God throughout all eternity. So it may have been called something different, um, and it certainly came into being in a sort of a new way or a new expression at Pentecost. But it's not accurate to say from the reform perspective that the church sort of hard stop came into existence in Acts 2. Um, we would say that Moses was a part of the church. We would say that Abraham was a part of the church. We would say John the Baptist was part of the church. All the faithful saints throughout all time uh, were part of the church. Right. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that leads into what I often see is like that second big divide. And this is where I think it's helpful to kind of, for us to just to draw this out quite honestly, because I think that some who kind of conform to this view don't always understand that where it leads them is in this direction of having not just one plan for salvation, but that there would be two separate plans. And whether they run parallel or not can be confusing, but I would say that dispensationalists are going to have to tend to argue that sinners in the Old Testament, like the ones you just mentioned, were not justified by faith in the gospel of you know Christ as sin bearer, but rather right. their faith was in the promises that were particular to that individual error in redemptive history. Right. So right. they may have received occasional messianic prophecy, but that was not essential to their saving faith. And for those that actually will agree with that, I give them kudos because they're being consistent with this view. But I don't think that that is what the clear kind of plain and plenary understanding of the full counsel of God lends to. Yeah. Something uh, you may remember when we were talking about covenant theology, we read uh, out of the Westminster Confession. Um, I'm going to read another section of this, one of the same sections again. Um, it's chapter seven and it's section five. And it says this covenant it's referring to the covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by the promises, prophecies, sacrifice, circumcision, and paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come. And what I found is interesting is that they cite in this passage as a proof text, they cite uh, Hebrews 8 through 10. 
like three whole chapters of, of, a, of a book, <laughs> which I think is the only place they do that. But I, I've, I've often kind of joked, you know, I, that I don't know how people can read the book of Hebrews um, and not understand this. And, and when I look back on my life as a dispensationalist, when I kind of was a unwitting dispensationalist, because that was just what I thought Christianity was, the book of Hebrews didn't make any sense to me at all. Um, I read it because it was part of the Bible and I was sure that it had some value, but I had no idea what it was. Um, and I just avoided it after I'd read it the first time and it made no sense to me. Um, but once I started to understand covenant theology, it really kind of clicked in place. And, um, this is the section that I think, um, speaks most directly to the issue. And it's actually not in the section they quoted. Um, but it's in section three or in chapter three. Um, and it started at the beginning of the passage. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, and the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken uh, were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and are boasting in our hope. So what's going on in this, this passage that, that speaks directly to this idea of two peoples of God is Moses is a servant in the house. Jesus is the master over the house. God is the builder of the house. And who is the house? In verse 6, we are his house. So the house is the church, and Moses is a servant in that house. And Jesus is the faithful master over that house that God built. So through this passage, what we see is that the house is the church, and Moses is part of that house. So when a dispensationalist looks at this passage, I honestly don't know what they do with that. Maybe they, I guess maybe they have to expand the idea of God's house to be like sort of broader and more metaphorical than it is. Right, exactly. But it's specifically talking about the household of, of believers. The house is the, the people of God, which is the church. Um, you know, we have in Galatians, Paul talks about the household of believers. So the household language is very common in the epistles. Um, I just don't really know where they go with this. Right, neither do I. I mean, it's a good reminder that even when we spoke last time about the covenant of grace, that that covenant of grace is not throwing out the covenant of works. It's actually right. fulfilling it. And there right. is a little bit of that intimation here as we read in that section. Because that is so beautifully rich. The language is just like flowing with love and structure and compassion and godliness and sovereignty. So the the idea that, like you said before, that Adam is created... He's in this like probationary period, which always makes me think of like a law enforcement, quite honestly. But he's made sinless, but clearly with the ability still to sin. And the requirement of perfect obedience for eternal life is not annulled by the covenant of grace, but God fulfills it in Christ on behalf of his people. Right. So now all those sinners are able to meet the perfect condition of obedience by his own performance. But it's one thing to say, well, those... Like like you said, Moses was a servant already in that house. He looked forward to that day. And it's another thing to say, well, Moses obeyed the law in his period and therefore was somehow made righteous before God right? because he compartmentalized his obedience and his sight, even by faith, into this small little window of time. That is a really nuanced and I think hard argument to make. It's a, it's a bridge too far to cross, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm just flipping through Hebrews. Hebrews is one of my favorite books. Um, so good. And, and as I'm flipping through it, if you were to kind of summarize the thesis statement of Hebrews, it would be that Jesus is a better priest. Yeah, um, amen. But you have to think about what he's a better priest of. And he's a better priest because he's a better priest of the one covenant of God with his people. Yes. So, um, you know, Hebrews 6, we've talked about this passage before. It says in verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swore, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Well, when you look through the book of, of Hebrews, you read the book of Galatians, the point that the authors are making is that that promise that God made to Abraham is the same promise by which we're saved. So the the fact that, you know, the author of Hebrews 
writes this passage talking about the, the certainty of the promise to Abraham, and he rolls it straight over into that being a certain promise to us. Well, if the promise made to Abraham is completely distinct from the promise made to us, then this passage really doesn't give us any certainty at all because it's not talking about anything that's connected to us at all. Right. Yeah, so when it, it says, if, go ahead. I was just going to say, if, there, if there's only one promise of salvation by grace through faith, then it follows that there can be only one overarching covenant of grace. So right. all of that specific redemption, redemptive covenants that we're speaking of, they're all culminated and wrapped up in an expression of like super Jason grace, which God offers to us through his covenant. And it gets confusing. I think there's a lot more work, a lot more, you know, kind of linguistic gymnastics that you have to do when you take on the dispensationalist view. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, um, that's part of, you know, I keep on coming back to this, that there's so many different dispensationalisms. Yes. And, it, you know, it's not the case. There certainly is variety within the Reformed confessional world. It's not the case that there's uh, absolute, you know, unanimity um, in, I can say unanimity, but I can't say dispensational. Yeah, that was really smooth. That I know. I didn't like even have really to think smooth. about it. Maybe yeah. I'm just overthinking it too much when I come to those words. Um, just let it go, man. You know, it's not the case that there's unanimity among the Reformed. But there's such a wide range of variation among dispensationalists. Um, you know, you have everyone from John MacArthur, who is, on the whole, a faithful Bible teacher. And then you go all the way to, you know, um, John Hagee and the Four Blood Moons. Or you go all the way to Harold Camping and the, you know, the rapture is, is imminent. And so you have this, such a huge range that it's hard to even say, like, what would the dispensationalist do with this text? Because it's like every single dispensationalist comes to the text and they come up with something different, a different, you know, and, and like you can roll that into, oh, well, you know, we just had this terrorist attack in Manchester and I'm not making light of that at all, but how many dispensationalists ran to Revelation and tried to line up, you know, the, the attack in Manchester with one of the nations named in, in Revelation or in Ezekiel somewhere? Um, there's no good way for them to have this consistent uh, consistent hermeneutic because they're constantly looking to find, ironically, they're constantly looking to find these sort of hidden meanings within relatively straightforward texts, right? Ezekiel talks about Gog and Magog. Well, who was he probably talking about? Well, probably not Russia. Russia didn't exist and wouldn't exist for thousands of years. Well, he's probably talking about geopolitical nations at the time. Right, and he may exactly. not have called them by their proper name because he didn't want to get murdered. Right. So the Holy right. Spirit inspired him to use different names for Gog and Magog um, in order to protect his life or to, um, you know, there's a constant refrain in, in Revelations, let the one who has ears hear. Well, that's saying like some of these things aren't going to make sense to everybody because the Holy Spirit has to allow you to hear. And so he has to give you ears. But the dispensationalist is constantly, you know, they've got a lot of times they have a newspaper in one hand and the scripture in another. And they're constantly trying to line those things up. And what happens is that forces them to interpret the scripture based on current events rather than letting the scripture speak for itself. Right. And we can all be guilty of that from time to time. We're just pointing out one thing, I think, in which as we've wrestled through specific pieces of systematic theology where we see there's a large gap. And I would go even further to say, I think you're saying the same thing actually, but that historic, the historic Protestant view is that the essential content of faith has been materially the same in all ages. Right. So this can even push against a very historical view in most Protestant circles, because where I can't get around is if somebody's going to have to make the claim that the justifying faith in the Old Testament was not in a Messiah that was foreseen by these saints of old. So we actually have to say, well, they were, lo were not looking ahead, actually, to Christ as sin bearer. They were looking to something else. They were expecting, you know, some kind of performance in the short term that would meet the objective that God gave them in that particular time period. Right. And I don't even know if we can justify that kind of claim by inference. And if that's an argument from silence in the scriptures, then that's probably even worse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, you know, the reform position, particularly the uh, millennial position, um, does have this tendency to do the same kind of thing, only instead of a, a newspaper, they have a history book in their hand. Yeah, for sure. Right. So so all millennialists tend to interpret 
um, the prophecies uh, in Revelation as though they are by and large already fulfilled, that they're references to things that would happen in the first century. And the reason for that is a good hermeneutic reason is Revelation had to mean something, had to have significance to the people who it was being written to. Um, it's it's probably not the case that John would send this book with the letters to seven churches in Turkey and then say, well, I've got these letters, but everything else in this book isn't going to happen for thousands of years. Like that doesn't that doesn't edify. It serves no purpose for those people. So the Reformed understanding usually wants to say most of these um, events chronicled in Revelation are apocalyptic uh, descriptions of things that would happen, prob- usually referring to like persecution under the, the Roman Empire under Nero and Domitian and the different historical positions. But we can be guilty too of looking with the history book and saying, oh, see, look, this line's up here. This The beast must be Nero. Well, maybe it's not Nero. Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's something else. And maybe we have to understand the scripture exclusively on the basis of the scripture. So we may never be able to identify who the beast is in right. in hard specific terms but is the book of revelation worthless to us because we can't identify who the beast is well no because we can all resonate and maybe this is part of why it's not labeled specifically in there is we can all resonate with what it's like to be oppressed on some level and that happens in various degrees throughout the history of the church but right now in america we're dealing with certain religious liberties being revoked and pulled back so we can resonate with what it's like to live under an oppressive regime. Certainly not as oppressive as it could be, and things are probably going to get worse before they get better. Um, but we can resonate with that. And so we can take Revelation and we can draw encouragement and edification from it. Um, I, I record short videos once in a while to post um, to the Reform Pub, and I, I made the point the other day that when we look at what's going on in the world, we look at ISIS, we look at this bombing in Manchester, we look at an eight-year-old girl being killed because she was out at a concert. Now, whether or not she should have been at a concert at eight years old for Area Grande anyways is a different question, but um, not a parent. Parents can make their own decisions. But when we look at that, we can look at the book of Revelation where Christ says, I am the first, I am the last, and I am coming. And we can take comfort in that. Now, if if what Christ is saying is there's this thing that's going to happen in the future— and it doesn't it doesn't happen for an undefined amount of time. I don't really know what kind of comfort I can draw from that. That doesn't really right. tell me anything. It doesn't edify me. It doesn't equip me for anything. Maybe it makes me quote rapture ready, but I, that still didn't really ever do that either. So I just think we have to be cautious as we interpret scripture to understand, you know, that scripture is there for our edification. And if our interpretation leads us to a place where that scripture can't edify us, then maybe we've gone awry somewhere. Amen. Especially because we know what the intent of God's full counsel is in our lives. And one of those things is to edify, to correct, to counsel right. in all ways. Um, I mean, kind of to bring us back to the theme of, of the thread, I think that the great beauty in looking at covenant theology is the straightforward way that it comes through the scriptures that's aligned with the grand arc of what God is doing throughout time and with his people. And I'm drawn to Hebrews 1 because that's what you brought up and also because I just love that beginning those beginning couple sentences. So I want to read those real quick, kind of I think as a, a summation of a lot of what we've been saying. So long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he anointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Man, I love that sentence. And he yeah. sat down. You know That complete work of Christ, which we're saying, is what unites all of the church together, that we look forward, even those of old look forward to that day in hope, in faith, trusting that the promise, the seed of Abraham, the one that was actually promised to him, would be the Christ who would come and do away with all sacrifices. So it blows my mind to have some understanding that David, Moses, Abraham, that as the Holy Spirit was present in them and bringing that sight in faith to fruition, they were trusting in that in the same way that you and I are. And there is a for real brotherhood that transcends time and space and location and geography, everything. But that we can trust in that finished work. 
And that is the covenant of God without respect to having to fulfill all these tiny little promises all along the way and failing so that we super Mario'd up to like the next level, <laughs> even though we didn't accomplish the thing that we were set out to do. That Christ comes and erases all of that and gives us the perfect promise in which to firmly plant both of our feet. So I just get fired up about that because it's such a wonderful promise. And I love how the scriptures make that so clear that he sat down. I mean, like you only sit down after everything is done in your day. When you're like, everything's done, I can sit down in confidence. And here we have Jesus Christ making that firm statement on our behalf. So I just love that. That was like, I'm sorry that that just launched straight into sermon time, but man, that's so good. No, and I actually delivered a sermon once on that same, that very same topic. And, you know, there's an interesting progression that happens. So Daniel 7, uh, verse 13, you know, is the classic point where it says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there will come one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So this is a... Um, Dispensationalists tend to read this as a prophecy of Christ's return, his his return from heaven. But historically, this has been understood as Christ coming to the king, coming to the father in his ascension. Right. And um, there's an interesting progression that happens in the New Testament is you look in the beginning of of Acts and Christ is taken up in the sight of the apostles and he disappears behind the clouds. And then you get to Stephen and as he's being stoned to death, he looks up and he looks into heaven and he's so, he's shown a glimpse of Christ and Christ is standing at the right hand of the father. So he hasn't been seated yet. Then we get to revelation and we have this scene repeated again where the lamb comes in and he's worthy to unlock the scroll. And then he is seated next to the father. And what we're given is this picture that Christ is currently seated on his throne he has taken his throne and he has been given this everlasting dominion. And that's, I mean, in a nutshell, that's why that's what convinced me of amillennialism is that dispensationalism on one level has to say that Christ is not seated on his throne. Christ right. has not finished the task yet. He is not seated on the throne because there's still this millennial kingdom, which Satan isn't bound for the, the dispensational. He's running amok. He's out there doing whatever he wants and he won't be bound until the thousand years are up. Well, the amillennialists and the postmillennialists, and even in some ways the pre the premillennialists, the non-dispensational premillennialist, looks at the text and says, "No, the gospel is propagating essentially freely in the world. I mean, for the most part, the gospel is able to go out freely in the world, and there are probably more missionaries and more missionary activities happening right now than there ever were. Listen to me, I think I might almost just become a postmillennialist." Um, <laughs> You know, it's, it's not right now in real time. <laughs> it's not the case that um, we're going to come into this golden age before Christ returns. But by and large, the gospel is flourishing, right? We're right. able to come and produce this silly little podcast, but we're able to preach the gospel to, you know, however many hundred and fifty thousand listeners we have. <laughs> right. Nobody even caught that. <laughs> Um, we're able to we're able to preach the gospel on occasion to whatever our listener base happens to be at the time, and um, you know it amazes me. I don't know about you, Jesse, but I once in a while I get I I'm out somewhere in the world and I run into somebody who listens to the show that I don't expect, and it, it kind of is really humbling. But it's the truth that like there's all these different mediums for the gospel to go out, and you're telling me that Satan is not bound. I mean, right, I know there's exactly. terrible things that are happening in the world right now, but the gospel moves freely more freely than it probably ever has. Um, and we may be coming into a period where that's not the case anymore, but at least up until now, it's there's been 500 years basically of total freedom to preach the gospel in most places in the world. And that's pretty amazing. It is really amazing, man. What a sweet thing that God gives us logic and his words that we can wrestle through this kind of thing and talk through it. Just like you said, but that was a beautiful trajectory, a reminder that this is why I want to sink ourselves deeply into God's word to really yeah. understand these things and really come to terms with how they change our behavior, how they transform our mind for good or bad so that we understand God's word better and then live it out more consistently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think we should probably come down and wrap that up. So let me just make a couple quick recommendations. Um, apart from, uh, going and listening to all, uh, 95 episodes of theology <laughs> simply profound that they did on dispensationalism. Um, you should check out uh, kingdom come by Sam storm, which is the book that convinced 
excuse me, the book that convinced me of amillennialism. Um, it's very exegetical. Um, Sam Storms was trained at Dallas Seminary as a dispensationalist, um, and it wasn't until after he came out of that that he, um, I don't want to use the word converted, but until he switched views to the amillennial position. So it's very thorough, it's very comprehensive, but it's also very readable. I already referenced a case for amillennialism, which is more, um, more theological than it is uh, exegetical. It's not to say it doesn't have an exegetical bent to it, but it's more of a theological approach to the topic. Um, where Kingdom Come is much more exegetical. And then if you're looking for a good um, sort of classic source, I have Things to Come by J. Dwight Pentecost. Um, there's lots of different sources um, that you can look up, um, you know, on the subject. Um, but take some time to read the original sources on dispensationalism. Um, it's important when you're you know, interacting with a position to understand it and represent it faithfully, as faithfully as you can. Um, so we hope that we've presented it accurately. Um you know, but we're not experts, but, you know, I think we did, did a decent job, but check it out for yourself. There's, you know, most of the books are still available. Um, don't read left behind as though it's an accurate representation of dispensationalism. Uh, if you're a glutton for punishment and you want to read left behind, then have at it. I'm sure you can probably find it on Kindle. I will not be providing a link to that in the show notes. That is just great. I'm just picturing somebody picking that up and being like, what? This, this is like nothing like what these guys spoke about. They've got it entirely wrong. I've read all of left behind. Yeah. Well, and that, I mean, not to, not to jump back into a full topic, but there's some interesting, there's some interesting historical studies about how dispensationalism spread and why it spread so pervasively everywhere. Yeah, that's true. And, one of it is that there was all these Bible conferences. They were the first sort of theological position to do a lot of like layperson Bible conferences. Um, they had study notes in their Bibles. So they Schofield. published um, the Schofield, Schofield Reference Bible. Bible. Um, the um, There's a whole, there's a couple of them. Uh, I, for whatever reason, I can't think of them off the top of my head. But they, they published those. And so that was one way. Um, they were at the time kind of a voice of conservatism. Um, within a very very liberal trajectory. So even a lot of Presbyterian people in the, the time that this was coming out, people who affirmed the Westminster Confession, they sort of uh, you know um, imbibed dispensationalism because they were going to these Bible conferences for training. Um, you know, And then there's this popular movement, these fictionalized books like Left Behind, um, Late Great Planet Earth. There's a couple different fictionalized versions of this that have also increased the popularity. So most, even non-Christians, would probably think that this secret pre-tribulation, pre-millennial rapture, that that's, that's what Christianity is. Right, exactly. But in actuality, it's, an, it's a pretty extreme minority, historically speaking, and I, I, I'm thankful, you know, and I, I thank God that it is becoming a much more minority position, even just contemporarily. It seems like dispensationalism is really kind of on the downslide. Progressive dispensationalism is kind of sliding uh, into a, what's called New Covenant theology, which is not great, right. but it's better than dispensationalism. Um, and that seems there. to be the trajectory that, that we're going. So I think that that's good, but it's still really important to, to keep an eye out for this stuff. And let's be honest, if you and I had to point our finger at one particular thing, at one particular person to blame for this, it's going to be Nicolas Cage, right? Oh, yeah, definitely Nicolas Cage. I mean, you can only have when you have two movies that involve the rapture in your extensive movie uh, repertoire, you know, there's something something is off base. What are the chances? What is he doing? Also, Kirk Cameron. Yeah. uh, Yes. He was the original. I know. That's very true. Guy. Yeah, that's very true. And How I'm many gonna, times can you say that uh, Nicolas Cage and Kirk Cameron have been in uh, essentially the same movie? Yeah, that is the answer to some kind of more modern edition of Trivial Pursuit question. Yeah, like the exactly. Pink, the pink pie or whatever it is. Pink slice, pink wedge, <laughs> whatever that's called. We don't even know what we're talking about. I, I don't even know what we're talking about. I'm going to recommend that whether you're dispensational or covenant theology, that you please head on over to iTunes and if you've enjoyed any part of this con- uh, this contest, this conversation, <laughs> this contest that we created between dispensationalism and covenant theology, that you go and rate us. Please give us a full five dispensations if you've enjoyed the show. Um, how go. else can uh, people get in touch with us, Tony? Uh, you can also uh, shoot us up on Twitter. Shoot us up. Hit shoot us up us on Twitter. <laughs> Please do not fire at us on Twitter. I feel like I need to take a nap, but it's like 8.30 at night, so maybe I just need to go to sleep. You can hit us up on Twitter at Reform Bros, or Reform Brohood. 
Uh, you can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook by searching Reform Brotherhood. Uh, and you can also call us at 607-444-BROS, Bros. which is 2767. Uh, we still still aren't getting any voicemails. I know. We would no love, love to get some voicemails. On the voicemails. Dispensationalists, where are you at? Call us. Call us and explain all the ways we were wrong. Yeah, please do. The lines are open for you right now. Yeah. Also they give us are. five dispensations on iTunes. Yeah, so just to close it out, I want to share a funny nightmare that I used to have on a repeating basis. All right, this so is great. <laughs> I used to have this nightmare that the church got raptured, but when God sent the angels to rapture the church, they were confused and they took all the church buildings. Wait. That's that's the nightmare. Wait, wait. So he so, sent he sent the angels to rapture the church. Okay, I'm but with they you. got confused and took the church buildings instead of the people. And you guys find this out because like you show up on the Lord's Day and there right. what is there? Is there just Nothing. a parking lot? Nothing. Or? It's just like the foundation. <laughs> it's just the foundation. <laughs> yeah, and but like but like you could see them like taking the churches up into the sky. So it wasn't like people didn't know it was happening. But like oh. the angels got confused and screwed up God's plan. Gotcha. So it was a slow ascension right. of the building, but they left the basement. Yeah. The foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. is a really unique dream. It is. I also used to have repeated nightmares that uh, there was a final test after the rapture that we were raptured. The church was raptured, but was raptured into an identical earth. And so we were raptured to that identical earth but it made it seem like all of the all of the non-Christians were raptured and it was like the final test of faithfulness if we would still worship God even if we thought we were left behind. Wow. I'm pretty sure yeah. that you and I could make that movie and I I could, I could tell you who would be great as a starring role in it. Nicolas Cage. That's right. Oh, where are all the Christians gone? <laughs> just, Look at that building flying in the air. Honestly, <laughs> I'm I'm still picturing all of these churches being lifted up by their steeples, like in a very dramatic and slow way yeah. and just being ascended. But everybody looking around like, so in this dream, because usually the nightmare is that you're left behind, of course, but yeah. you're saying everybody was left behind. And yeah. The buildings were gone. I think the nightmare aspect of it was, was like, oh, what, a, like, what's God going to do now? Like, oh, now that I the see. angels have screwed up the rapture, like. And okay, to bring it all back, in dispensational theology, we have to remember that there actually is the church actually is Plan B, right? So sure. if it happened that the the angels took the church buildings, then God would have to formulate a Plan C because like, what do we do now? Because we can't go on with Israel because the church is still here, and we can't take the church because we already raptured the church. So what do we do? There'd have to be a Plan C. So even your strange dispensational nightmares were theologically consistent. Like you can't even dream inconsistently. Well, I had no idea what I was talking about back then. <laughs> I mean, some people would say, I don't have any idea what I'm talking about now, but no, I, yeah. I had no concept. I'm pretty I, sure. I thought that left behind was like a, like an actual transcript of the future. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that people said these guys have no idea what they're talking about about 20 seconds into this particular yeah. podcast. Yeah, I actually met a guy named Nikolai one time. He was a classmate, and I absolutely didn't trust the guy. Because of Nicolas Cage? No, no, Nikolai. Nikolai Carpathia was oh, an Antichrist. Oh, oh, oh. I met him, and his name was Nikolai, and I was like, I don't think we can be friends. Yeah, that is that is a unique name. I forgot that that was that dude's name in the books. I, I didn't even remember that. I didn't even finish the, the books. It, they got a little weird. Yeah. All right, well, we are over time, and we should wrap up. So, Jesse, do you have any final words of wisdom before we close? besides the beauty of being able to trust in the finished work of Christ and how glorious that is, uh, nothing. That's just, that's it. All right. Well, thank you for listening. We hope we see you next week. And as always, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. All right, let me get back into character here.